Welcome back to Red, White, and Vroom Podcasting, Formula One, IndyCar, and Zeppelin Rallycross, a production of Consolidated's Lutheria Media. Official disclaimer, for the purposes of this podcast, I officially know nothing about anything, while Elena knows something about several things, none of them officially. I am your host, Jonathan, and joining me on the other line, she's raising a little terrorist. It is Elena. <laughs> Thank you. I think we have to start with Alexander Rossi's discovery at 30 something years of age that children's behavior is in. <laughs> it, it took a, a, a baby coming into his own home. For him to realize that children are not, you know, sheer subjects of discipline. <laughs> yeah, on Off Track this week, he was describing uh, his fiance's niece. Uh, and he said, you know, when you go visit someone else's house and they've got kids, you just think they don't, you know, run a very tight ship. And then they come to your house and you realize, oh, no, it's actually just that children are terrorists. <laughs> And, like, he's right. I definitely have had that thought before, you know, before I had a kid, where I was like, everything's so crazy here. Why don't they just have some discipline? And you know why? It's because they have children. (laughs) Uh, At small group uh, the other night, we had a situation of that, of, you know, incorporating one of the kids who is starting to get old enough to take part in some ways. But sometimes they want to be the boss of this apparent playtime. And that's not what Bible study's for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kids struggle with that. We're working with one of my nieces on uh, if you want to know what's going on, you listen. You don't interrupt people to ask them what they just said. If you listen the first time, you'd know. She's about five. So it's. If she figures that out, can she tell me? (laughs) <laughs> all right let, let's jump into some motorsport because we are recording this thursday night in the lead up to 100 days to indy we are as a as a pregame if you will yeah uh you know this will be released by definition after 100 days to indy has aired and so we'll be outdated by the time it posts we only bring you the finest in programming and producing here at red white and vroom well and you know not all podcasts get this early look at the 100 days to indie series the producers are clearly (laughs) playing favorites where off track gets to watch it ahead of time and pre-record reactions and what no love for their friends at red white and vroom we have to wave our antenna in the air and catch some signals. So Nepotism. we are in a race against the clock. So let us dive in um, and start with the only uh, one of our series that was racing this past weekend, which was Formula One in Miami. Um, I My approach to uh, this race, I was... Uh, I had lingered with a group of friends in Washington Square Park in the sun and hesitated to tear myself away before I ran home. And thus, the race was starting. 
while I was on the bus approaching. <gasps> so I was streaming it on Peacock, you know, a- as a modern man. But there was a lot of adrenaline to like get there. <laughs> or not Peacock, F1, F1. TV. Um, and then I sat down. I made it. You know, I had got my food delivered. It was it was all solid. And, you know, so it was a good adrenaline pump start to the race. How was your uh, watching experience? So I thought it started half an hour before it did. So I got, you know, everything all settled in front of the TV, ready to start watching the race. And then I realized that it was half an hour later. And I was like, well, I'm already here. So I watched a bunch of the pre-show, which I never ah, do. What was going on with the pre-show? It was it was weird. Uh, that the driver introductions were weird. Uh, the highlight, in my opinion, was Lando dodging the like spray of fog that the machine did at him. He sort of like uh, like jerked <laughs> out of the way. It was really funny. Um, but I was not a fan. I would say. Uh, would not would not prefer to watch that in the future. Okay, okay. Um, and of course, the drivers were very put out at having to stand, you know, around and be introduced to the hundreds of thousands of paying fans. Okay, okay. So here's the thing. I did not enjoy watching that, but I also resent that the drivers complained about it. Yes. <laughs> because... Like, sure, they don't like it. I'm sure most athletes don't like that. They do it in a lot of sports where, like, they do a whole big rigmarole. But it's part of the job. You're paid an obscene amount of money to drive these stupid little cars. Very, well, actually, pretty big cars at this point. Fast. And, like, that's your job. Like, you can deal with standing there and having LL Cool J introduce you. Yes. What I do think... um. What occurred to me is that one of the things that may make it particularly uh, uncomfortable is the way in which this intro, which is, you know, just sort of a way of American glitz and glamour coming in, uh, you know, playing to the local flavor, um, interacts with the FIA's new crackdown insisting that drivers have their fireproof race suits strapped up to the net at all times in race proximate activities and so they you know it would likely be a slightly more pleasant experience if they could have that even frankly even just sort of the neck strap undone much less sort of you know uh freed from the confines of fireproofing I mean, on the one hand, that makes sense. On the other hand, it was not that hot on Sunday in Miami. I have this from reliable sources, people who were there. And I just like, I'm like, eh, you can deal with it. Yes, certainly, certainly. But I I do think it is uh, instructive to take note of a way in which the FIA's draconian, um, uh, you know, crusade to stomp out any driver individuality uh you know played into this okay yeah point taken now uh let's deal with the race um you know uh as i said on our last podcast i i was really sort of and 
especially since our last podcast, I was getting increasingly invested in this idea of, you know, as uh, a Sergio Perez fan, you know, not, <laughs> not that I necessarily expect, you know, it to go the distance, but it's kind of neat to have your guy in the hunt, you know, fighting his teammate in the dominant car mm-hmm. and set up with all you know all the opportunities to succeed on a street track where max you know bonked himself in qualifying and started from ninth mm-hmm. how'd that work out for you what a gut punch i, yeah. I mean, that, that really was the end of it yeah you know I, as someone who's investing in the dream that was the end of the dream because you can't really expect anything more from that and if checo can't outfight max from from then and there yeah i saw i saw a graphic uh i think you actually sent it to me on instagram showing uh the path to checo winning the world drivers championship and i think it had max getting arrested in at Imola and therefore being uh dsq'd and i think truly is the only way it happens Okay, I did like, not, not send from that this race. to you, and I need you to send this to me. Okay, I will find it. I'm pretty sure it was on Instagram, but it it was like he gets arrested and therefore misses the rest of the season. <laughs> oh, oh man! But yeah, I think that really is the only path to a Checo championship. Unfortunately, further in Formula One news, I am wearing my Alpine hat today. Because we, at the start of the season, put us all on blood feud watch <laughs> of Le Boeuf, of Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly, childhood best friends turned mortal enemies on the same team. And conflict has boiled over, and it hasn't come from the drivers, but rather, apparently, Lauren Rossi, CEO of the Alpine brand and also the Formula One team, for reason, uh, gave an interview to the French media, lambasting his team, calling them something like dilettantes, and, you know, kicking off rumors that Otmar Safnauer's job may be in jeopardy, perhaps before the end of the season. Mm. What's your reaction to this, Elena? What is going on? What, like, are... Are the French okay? I mean, no, they're not. But like, it's just, it seems like creating drama where they already had plenty and didn't need more. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing. It seems pretty clear that Laurent Rossi was singularly responsible for three quarters of the drama from last year. <laughs> The Alpine legal department being the other quarter, but that may have been running into a roadblock of Laurent Rossi. I thought we were going to give Fernando Alonso some of that. Um, And he is in charge of a sort of sporty sub-brand and the Formula One team and is choosing to fire shots at his team principal who has a long track record of success in Formula One, unlike himself. <laughs> I'm thinking that Otmar's seat is not the only one that's hot here. Ooh. Well, I have it on good authority that Alpine sales 
are also not where they would like them to be. They're offering uh, some pretty attractive incentives for ordering uh, the new a new Alpine. And actually, someone I know uh, has one on order. Not well, has a deposit on one that the dealer has ordered, and may or may not end up purchasing the car. So. It, it seemed to me this reads like Alpine is reviving Alpine was this like pitch and corporate strategy that is fizzling and Laurent is going to find himself with more time to spend in the south of France <laughs> and we are going to get Renault back on the Formula One grid. I mean, F1 is doing well. I think that Alpine as a brand is in an interesting place where they don't have a whole lot of products. They're very, they've got, you know, really one, it's very niche, but also it's at a price point that isn't sort of like the super, super luxury. It's not, it's not like competing with most Ferraris or like a Lamborghini uh, or like a Bugatti type car. It's competing sort of with the mid-level sports cars. So something like a Porsche, but not a 911, probably more competing with like a Cayman. And uh, you know, it's a very good car, but that's a segment that has been really hurt uh, or the people who typically buy vehicles in that segment have been has been they've been very hurt by sort of the dip in the economy. I mean, if you if it's sort of like you are reaching to buy a car that I mean, they don't sell them in the US, but that cost sort of in the hundred thousand dollar range, that would be sort of the US equivalent. Um, I mean, it costs more than that in euros, but cars are different there. Uh, if that's sort of like the reach and that's a, a splurge for you, that's probably something that you're cutting out of your spending plans right now. And I believe I've read that Renault is preparing to bring the Renault brand back to the U.S. shores. That's, there have been rumors about that for a while. I haven't read anything concrete about it, but I also haven't looked. Uh, right. So if that is the case, it seems like, you know tying their brand back to their world championship winning brand yeah, uh, is the one that actually makes any sense. Especially with the success of F1 in the US. I mean, if they want that to be a marketing tool, I mean, they're not, they're not selling Alpines here. I'll tell you that. It's not a car that would have commercial success here. It's way too European. There's like two cup holders and they're small. You can't put a soda in one. The- then what kind? Then if you can put a soda in a cup holder, what is it supposed to? It like fit? doesn't even really have a glove box. Like this is actually a very appealing car to me personally, but it is not a car that would be a commercial success here. All right, so take that, Laurent. Yeah, now, your car is bad, and you should feel bad. But actually, it's good. It just wouldn't sell in the U.S. <laughs> Speaking of very European things, um, our short king. Nick DeVries finally got his seat in Formula One this year after debuting with Williams in a you know dramatically successful Monza race and is having a real hard time of it. Um he yes. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on our short king then? I mean it's F1 is so different from from Formula E. Like the driving style of rewards is incredibly different. Like the strategy is incredibly different. The car is obviously very different. So I'm not surprised that he's having some struggles. Um, I mean, 
most rookies do. And I know it's tempting to sort of say that he should be better than most rookies. He's more experienced. Uh, And, you know, maybe he is better than most rookies. I mean, if you remember when Yuki uh, debuted at at Alphatari, he was getting his butt handed to him weekly by Gasly. So I don't think that this is that concerning. I think it's pretty normal growing pains. He's getting used to the demanding schedule, getting used to the team, getting used to the car. And it's also not like this is like a top car he's squandering the performance of. So, like, I I think we got to give him some time. You know, that thing that Formula One is famously willing to give to drivers. Yes, exactly. I I was a little perplexed when I first started hearing these uh, rumblings because... It's his rookie season, you know, Mm -hmm. he's in uh, what I believe the race podcast and their discussion of it uh, described as a team that, let's face it, no one cares about. Yeah. And so if you're going to struggle, you know, if you struggle in the forest and no one cares about it, did you really struggle? Yeah. Um, And I thought that he was coming in with uh, Max Verstappen's Dutch embrace. Of, you know, that Max had told him to talk to Helmut and he had come in and Max runs that team. But but I'm now starting to wonder if that story was Max saying, oh, Nick, you want me to help you get a drive? Hey, you should talk to Helmut. So I think that even if you sort of read that uh, in the way you were at first, where, you know, Max is doing him a solid, Max would like him there. You know, Max, I, I see him being like, okay, I helped him got the oppor- get the opportunity. Now it's on him. If he's not a good enough driver to keep the seat, that's not my problem. Like, I, yeah, I did that, my friend a solid, and he's got to earn it. That That's a very Max uh, way to think, actually. That's a good point. Uh, the other point was, you know, AlphaTauri has the worst car on the grid this year. Um, and so it would seem like you have to cut Nick a bit of a break there until I heard someone basically run down his recent results of like consistently finishing last. Hmm. See, I don't want, I don't want to acknowledge this because I like him and I want good things for him, and this is not a good thing. So I just want to pretend it doesn't exist. Right. Like, I I am hopeful that he will turn it around and everything. But seeing that made me more concerned, especially given that he is at a Red Bull racing organization. So, you know, knock on wood for Nick. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, F1... I logged in today and had a delight, uh, a surprise, a uh, gift in our uh, production materials. <laughs> uh, Elena, would you like to take us away? Yeah. So this is a segment of Sprint Race Ideas. So I asked our lovely listeners to reach out with their suggestions for the craziest things F1 could do for their sprint races. and. I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by the response. We had a grand total of zero. So I sat my butt down and made myself a list of what I think the most fun and maybe a little bit crazy 
uh, sprint race ideas would be. These are not things. So what I wanted to avoid was randomness because I don't think randomness is fun in racing. So there's like a million things you could do that would be fairly random, but I didn't think that that would make a event I would like to watch. These are not all things that I think the FIA would do. In fact, I think probably none of them are things the FIA would do, but they're things that I would enjoy watching and they're, I'm going to go through them roughly in order of how weird they are. So starting from the like sort of most like normy ones and moving, moving towards the ones that are like, really? What, what made you think of that? So the first one is your most normal one. Yes. <laughs> Take it away. Okay, and John, I want you to give me sort of your feedback to how much you think you would enjoy this as I explain it. You will have a running commentary. Excellent. So number one, we've all heard about it, is the reverse grid. I don't know if everybody's heard about it. Okay. What, what is this and why is this not a stupid bonkers idea? Okay, so it's what you uh, have your qualifying order. And for this one, you'd have to use the same qualifying order that you're using for the race to incentivize people to qualify well. So you call, do your qualifying for the, the GP. And then for the sprint, you just take that order and you reverse it. So whoever qualified last gets to start first for the sprint. And whoever qualified first starts at the end. So this is commonly cited. I think F2 does this. This is commonly cited as a way to get a lot more on-track action because you have the cars that should be fastest and should be, you know, leading at the back and they have to work their way through the field. Okay, so so in your proposal, you would reverse the entire grid. I, I think I oh, see yeah. some, uh, maybe at, uh, F2 or F3, they take the first 10 slots and reverse that. Mm-hmm. But you would reverse the whole grid. There's only 20 cars, but yes, yeah, I would. Okay. And award points based on finishing order. Yes. So if you're, you know, Fernando Alonso and you happen to get totally screwed qualifying 20th for the race, this will let you salvage some points for the weekend. Okay. I I like the idea of having it be the same qualifying as sets for the ra- the real race, because that does, uh, that that is more elegant than any other reverse grid proposal I've seen in terms of avoiding the gaming it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So next up. Okay. So next up, I've talked about this one before, an intentionally wet race. Some of the tracks have sprinklers installed. Bernie Eccleston actually floated this a while back. Uh, so you basically turn on the sprinklers. Everyone has to run the whole race on inners because the track is wet. So you say you don't want to introduce randomness, but does... Are wet races not, in fact, exciting because of the randomness that they introduce from peak performance conditions? So some of the randomness, though, in uh, wet races is, is is the rain going to stop? And in this case, you know the track is going to stay wet. It's going to stay roughly the same level of wet. It's going to be very similar lap to lap. So it's testing the driver's ability to drive in in the wet, not their ability to predict the weather. Ah, so you would have it be continually sprinkling. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's you keep the sprinklers on the whole race. But it but is co- constantly sprinkling. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I could see this going very entertaining. I could also see um, F1 engineers thus taking the extra time to spend their development uh, time on optimizing in wet conditions 
and it roughly settling out to the same order. Just so I th- more spray. I, in my concept, you you if you're doing six sprint races, you pick six different of these ideas. So you're only going to have one that's a wet sprint. And for the number of points mm. you could possibly win, it's not worth spending the development time on that. Interesting. All right, next up. Okay, so backwards circuit. Some of these circuits you can run uh, clockwise or counterclockwise. So whichever way you're doing it for the GP, do it the other way for the sprint. I love this idea. And I think all of the arguments that, you know, you couldn't uh, get like the safety right running it backwards are baloney. Well, so Just there are drive some. Drive it backwards. <laughs> there you are cowards. Some... <laughs> there are some circuits where you probably couldn't, but there are some where they do have events and races and go in both ways. Like in 2020, I one of the circuits they did was at Bahrain. I might be wrong about which one it was, but that's okay. One circuit they did, they ran it one direction one weekend and the other direction the next weekend. Did they run it the other direction or did they run the short track? Uh, maybe it was a short track. I don't know. There are circuits that are frequently run both ways. Do it the other way. Yes. R- do it both ways. The Elena uh, <laughs> principle. Exactly. Okay. So next one is spec cars. So whether this is, you know, some spec F1 car or, you know, make them all race in F2 cars for the heck of it. Like do a spec a spec race. Yes. I mean, this is objectively, I, I think, the best option. Okay. Uh, of a true test of drivers in this sport that is so dominated by engineering. So the next one is taking a, a oh, sorry. Uh, however, I would also like to suggest uh, that instead of, you know, a uh, dedicated racing car or, you know, like an F2 car or something like that, they all drive Ford Cortinas. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like watching the high-speed racing. I, I, I do, too. Maybe soup them up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want Ford Cortinas whipping themselves around I just had graded tracks. I just had another idea. So I'm going to add this one. I just thought of it. Uh, so Lemons Cars, but F1. So you get a set budget that's Rolo. Like, we're talking in F1, maybe, you know couple thousand dollars. dollars oh I, okay but a very low budget and you have to and you start they all start with the same vehicle and you can modify it however you want you see i love this <laughs> this would just like be taking f1 the height of uh uh precision and advancement and just injecting a little glimpse back to the garagista times <laughs> okay so next one this is taking some learnings from IndyCar. Push to pass. So DRS currently, you have to be within a second of the car in front of you. This would be that you get some certain amount of, of time. I don't know how much time. We'd have to figure that out. Where, where you get either, uh, you could just turn on DRS, regardless of you know where anyone around you is. Or you could do something with the hybrid system, where you get extra battery power uh, based on you know, you're using this timer button. So you get, you know, 30 seconds or, you know, a minute and a half in your sprint race of push to pass. Basically, this trial's push to pass for F1. Exactly. All right. Now, I noticed that we have nine minutes until 100 days to Indy kicks off. (gasps) So 
stay with us until next time when we get the really crazy ideas of Elena's ways to fix sprint races. Uh, Let's jump now to in last week's episode of 100 Days to Indianapolis. We got Colton and Pato. I think that was it. I was trying to remember. Was there anyone else? They, like, they had a little bit of Grosjean, but not like really. Right. Like he said, hi, and, I'm Romain Grosjean. And then they were done with him. And they had a little bit of Felix. Oh, yeah. Just just like a, a we, touch of Felix. But they they saved Rossi for later. They certainly did. looking forward to Rossi. So quick review. Um, I love the contrast of these two rising stars pato the the man of luxury (laughs) and colton the surfer kid who you know one of these months he's going to get around to not sleeping on the on his floor um and pato when he got into that shelby cobra oh and just grinned at the camera that was star wattage pure my heart melted oh yeah i i think everyone there just sort of just skipped to beat um and the other takeaway from it for me was when they did the recap of texas i mean i was leaning forward and my heart palpitating it you know in an echo of how it was the first time watching it that was a stressful exciting race i kept being like he can get it he can get it i was like elena you watched this race you know what (laughs) happens and i'm like no he can do it oh yeah it's like oh oh they're they're are 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 joseph and pedo gonna crash each other out they they got so close all right um and we will save the other indycar topic as well um as uh this weekend's race which is on saturday for all you uh listeners don't forget to call your mother and say happy mother's day on sunday right and they've moved the indycar race to saturday just so you don't have an excuse exactly and so let us uh go back to our time-honored hallowed outro the favored motorsport fact or anecdote and I'll kick us off here. Oh, you better uh, not steal mine. I doubt I will. Uh, but was having some conversations recently and uh, was reminded that what I think of as sort of a widely known uh, fact or anecdote is in fact not universally known, which is that the origins of a sport that we don't follow, but uh, has a prominent presence in these United States, NASCAR, uh, is literally the outgrowth of competitive moonshiner mm-hmm. bootleggers from North Carolina who would soup up their Fords and everything to outrun the revenuers around the mountain. And they started getting together in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and Daytona Beach, and going around in circles to see whose was fastest. Yeah, they did. And that is literally how the biggest motorsport in America was started. You know, we at Red, White, and Vroom do not endorse committing any crimes. But this is a particularly interesting crime to learn about. Yes. If you're going to consider crimes, 
Let them be motorsport related. I, I can get behind that, but no crimes. <laughs> no crime. All right, Elena, did I did I poach yours? You did not. All right, what have you got? So for those of us who watched the intro at the Miami Grand Prix, we may have noticed uh, a reference to the Miami uh, to Formula One as the greatest spectacle in motorsport. Uh, this sort of raised a lot of eyebrows because, as we are all aware, the greatest spectacle in racing is the Indy 500. The trademark says so. It's and, in the legal. No crimes. Know, these are not Alpine lawyers either, so they're <laughs> gonna they're gonna defend their trademark. But I was like, oh, I wonder where that comes from. And it turns out that. About 60 years ago, they were, for the first time, were broadcasting the entirety of the Indy 500 on radio. It used to be they did sort of half an hour at the beginning and then half an hour at the end, and they just like skipped the middle. But the radio broadcaster referred to it as the greatest spectacle in racing, and it stuck. All right. And, you know, I think intellectual property lawyers would call that a well-established, you know, history. And grounding. Well, and it's also, you know, IndyCar has aggressively defended this in the past. Uh, F1 sort of poached on their territory with trying to call uh, the Las Vegas race the greatest spectacle in motorsport. And they were like, "Uh uh-uh, no. And and Liberty Media was like, oh, whoops, sorry. And now they're like, they're doing it again. Yeah, I have my thoughts about whether Liberty was so innocent and surprised versus just doing this on purpose but we will revisit that in the future because now we have to sit down to 100 days to indianapolis thank you for joining us this has been red white and vroom podcasting